Well, it's an honor to be here this morning. For those of you who don't know who I am, uh, I was saved uh, rather outrageously and unexpectedly and suddenly in July of 1976 and called into the ministry about six months later. I was ordained to the ministry in 1992 and uh, have been in full-time ministry since uh, the late mid-80s. And um, so I'm thankful to be here this morning and to try to serve you with the word of the Lord. Um, right, so our text this morning is from the book of Isaiah, and Isaiah, Isaiah's times, we're going to look in the first 11 chapters, and in the book of Isaiah, during his times, it was a real time of political mayhem, and real, even cataclysmic events were going to be going on uh, in the nation of Israel at the time of Isaiah and Jeremiah and a couple of other prophets of the period, um, the, the nation had been divided into two kingdoms for almost 200 years by the time of Isaiah the prophet, and a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, Israel and Judah. And the northern kingdom was about to be overrun by Assyria and taken into captivity into Babylon. And uh, the southern kingdom... About a hundred years later, a little more was going to be overrun by Babylon and taken captivity to Babylon. So there was a lot of political mayhem, a lot of cataclysmic times that were coming that Isaiah was aware of, and he was trying to warn the people about because they were being judged by God for very grievous, unjust policies of the rulers and the kings that the people had signed off on, and that was part of the laws of the land. And so we read in Isaiah this, in chapter 8. You don't need to turn there. I'm just going to read a couple of verses till we get to our text today. Isaiah says, in the middle of all this political mayhem, he's trying to warn the nation of Israel what's coming and call them to repentance. The Lord spoke to me with his strong hand. That's a very unusual saying in the, in the, for, for a prophet to admit. I mean, these are guys that had God's hand upon them frequently when they prophesied, Right? But Isaiah is telling the people, look, the Lord's put his strong hand on me. He gave me this charge, if you will, me, a prophet of God. Apparently I was falling prey to something that you have all fallen to. The Lord spoke to me with a strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of the, of the people. The Lord said to me, do not call conspiracy everything these people call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear. And dread it not. The problem is that the people feared the conspiracies and the problems that were coming on the land as if political peace would solve their problems. But the peace that they had was based on these unjust policies. And there was all kinds of, you know, that's what happens even in this country right now. Things like this are going on from all the mayhem and all the wars and rumors of wars and this and that and the other thing. So do not call conspiracy. This is... Yahweh warning, warning Isaiah, who you'd think would have known better. But he's telling the people, no, this is what God told me. I'm going to listen to this. Don't call conspiracy everything these people call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear. Do not dread it. What is the solution to that wrong-headed fear? The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. The fear of the Lord is our solution to the fear of everything else 
that's going on around us, the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord. You are to guard him as holy. He is the one you are to fear. And he will be a sanctuary for both houses of Israel. He will be a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. We know as Christians that this is a subtle reference to Christ as the rock of God. For all the people of Jerusalem, he will be, but for all the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare because they're falling prey to these other fears and they have no fear of the Lord in them anymore. Many of them will stumble and they will fall and be broken. They will be snared and captured. But you, Jeremiah, bind up the testimony and seal my law among the disciples. So he tells the people he will wait for the Lord and put his trust in him. We'll come back to this text momentarily, but I want to tell you a little story that I think has a lot of relevance to this text this morning, to when we get to it in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 about the government of the Prince of Peace. Um, some of you will know that um, I worked in the field of foreign policy and diplomacy. God called me there for many years. Uh, I've weaned myself out of that the last few years. But for many years I worked there and uh, um, I helped to, I don't know, sounds like boasting, but I'm not just trying to be honest with you. It wasn't me, but God gave me this calling to help foreign policy and diplomats and negotiators, help them develop a biblically-based wisdom approach to solving problems of foreign policy and diplomacy. But I learned a lot from these people that I met in Washington, D.C. and other places, uh, men and women uh, who were working diligently themselves to um, solve adversarial relations between nations. But I was also helped quite a bit from dozens and dozens of books I read by people that I never met during that period. And one of those was a very courageous thinker and scholar named Jonathan Schell who wrote a book called The Unconquerable World. And in that book, The Unconquerable World, Schell uh, gives us many historical examples of the very radical difference between trying to solve national and international problems through uh, violence and war and peaceable means such as diplomacy and negotiations. And the book really held my attention uh, at the opening chapter because I began to catch this whiff of a of a uh, of a Christian worldview in the back of this what supposedly people would call a, a secular political thinker, an international thinker. But I thought there's something going on here, and what caught my attention was um, uh, the following story he told. Now you got to back up with me in history a little ways to uh, a time when there was an uh, ancient uh, a Roman poet named Virgil, and he wrote an epic poem called the Aeneid. And the Aeneid was a story uh, about uh, a man of war, uh, a, a warrior named Aeneid. It's a famous classical poem, and Virgil wrote this thing uh, over a period of several long years, uh, right before he died, and he died, and it was finished, and he died, and, the, and when he died, it was just about 20 years before Jesus' birth. And so the opening words of the Aeneid are, Of arms and the man I sing. So it, can tell, it tells you a little bit about what uh, that, that long epic poem uh, by Virgil is about. And in that poem, Virgil brings his considerable skills as a storyteller uh, to the subject of 
anger and revenge and violence and the bloody warfare of the period. And it really reminds me, and that's why a lot of scholars have called that poem uh, the national epic of the Roman Empire. (laughs) Because although it's known by other scholars as the Pax Romana or the Peace of Rome, uh, today we have what's called the Pax Americana, (laughs) scholars call it, or the Peace of America, Uh, The Roman Empire was anything but peaceful, (laughs) and the way it enforced that peace was through military means. We know this from reading the New Testament, uh, and it didn't take much for people to get put in line by the military. (laughs) But in the opening chapter of the book, having described that uh, in the unconquerable world, Shell puts his finger into history at the time of Virgil and Christ, and he's going to call our attention to what he then writes about uh, what he calls two uh, coexisting and perennial traditions that have existed side by side. One is sanctioning violence, and the other is sanctioning peace. And of the worldly and violent tradition, Shell writes, and I quote, it's a system at its best of standing up for principle with force, right with might, at its worst of plunder, exploitation, and massacre. Shell reminds us that this worldly and violent tradition was exemplified by Virgil in the Aeneid, but this is his point, and he really emphasizes this in the opening chapter of the book. This violent and worldly tradition of war and violence stands in radical contrast, he writes, to the tradition of Jesus. This is what began to get my attention in the book. Shell writes of Jesus that he was speaking the words that would become much better known, and you may guess at what uh, words of Jesus he's talking about here. Put up thy sword, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. And Shell adds this very significant point. He writes, and I quote again, it was in the heat and fury of a bloody altercation, not from the quiet study, from the quiet of a philosopher's study that Jesus said this. Jesus, Shell writes, sang of Uh, the man without arms, so to speak, the man who does not do violence, doesn't carry weapons of violence and war. And since then, Shell continues, the two conflicting traditions, one sanctioning violence, the other forbidding it, have coexisted, each retaining its power in spite of the other. I think he's really summed it up there, the two radically different forms of government. And it's Jesus' form of government Uh, that we're going to look at today as our topic in Isaiah chapter 9. Now, may I just say quickly to you, beloved ones, that, um, and I'm not the only one who's thinking and praying about this, the only minister and others, um, Not a few Christians today, uh, not just in America, but in many places, have seemed to become more intent on uh, following the tradition of anger and revenge and violence uh, than the peaceful way of Jesus, whose government is one of peace, righteousness, and justice, as our text will reveal. And that, and given the seemingly endless stories of national and international political mayhem and and, uh, that we're bombarded with in the news headlines every day, and wars and rumors of wars. Um, This seemed like a likely moment for followers of Jesus 
to consider what it means to not pick up arms and resort to violence, but to reflect on what the governing principle, so to speak, of the Prince of Peace is all about. That's what God is calling Isaiah and God's people to do, even during a time of cataclysmic changes in their land. So chapter 9 even though there's in chapter, he ends chapter 8 saying, then there'll be in the, on the earth, there'll be only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. Chapter 9 begins, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And those living in the shadow of death, and on those living in the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as a people at the harvest rejoice, as men when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the rod, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors. Every warrior's boot is used in battle, and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning fuel for the fire. Why? Famous words again. For us, for us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called, what? right. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase, let me just say, the little word for there is like the word because. We'll get to that in a minute. So the reason for, all, for the warfare being ending is because for this child will be born. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. His reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, his reign, excuse me, he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with righteousness and justice. From that time on forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So we learn from this passage in Isaiah 9 a few things. One is that the pro- in the prophecy, <clears throat> God has first of all shattered and broken into pieces, uh, totally defeated the inescapable yoke of heavy burdens that had been placed on the shoulders of the people by the oppressors of God's people. That's verse 4. You have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors. <laughs> that's been shattered. And this is an image of total deliverance from violence and war, from the mighty military power of empire and imperialism. This is clear from verse 5. Every warrior's boot in battle, every garment rolled in blood will be destined for the burning fuel for the fire. Militarism, war, violence is destined for 
for burning as fuel for the fire. This is a promise of God that harkens back to chapter 2. In the last days, the mountains of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Why? They will come and say, Let us go to the mountain of the Lord. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations. He will settle the disputes of many peoples. Another famous passage. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up war against nation anymore, nor will they train for war. So come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. So just what kind of governing power is this in our Prince of Peace that he can pull this off? No more revenge-taking or violence or even war. No political mayhem, international peace. Huh? Huh? We're so far from that today, aren't we? Well, it's the power and the authority of the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace will shoulder on his government the burden of government, the government of no more revenge, violence, and of all the horrors that go with it, including genocide and others that I won't mention this morning. For he is the Prince of Peace. In 9-7 we read, that the power and authority rests on him forever and of the increase of his government of peace. There will be no end. No end. Doesn't that call for some hallelujahs among us? Now, in the Hebrew language, in verse 6, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, in the Hebrew language there, um, it's a long sentence in the Jewish tradition. Uh, and uh, it's, it's, the na- it's some of the names and titles of this mighty God that's being talked about here. In the Christian tradition, we see the Trinity there. Um, I mean, those of you who saw any of the remembrances of Queen Elizabeth II <clears throat> a few weeks ago, will have heard some of the many names and titles that she has. So even today, royalty has many names of titles. This is a long-standing tradition. So we Christians see the Trinity there. How so? Wonderful Counselor is the Holy Spirit. Uh, see John chapters 14 through 16. Everlasting Father. See Jesus, especially in John 17 and other places in the New Testament. For Prince of Peace, see the entire New Testament, especially John fourteen twenty seven, Romans five one. Just a few addresses for you, Philippians four seven, and especially the entire Sermon on the Mount. <clears throat> and in case any Jews were wondering who this Prince of Peace was, <clears throat> they have Psalm one thirty six and a few other places. In Psalm one thirty six. 
verses 1 through 3 reads, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, his love endures forever. And then it goes on to talk about the history of God and salvation. But those, we don't have time this morning to go into the Hebrew words that are used there for God, God's Lord, Lord, and so on and so on. But all of those cover all the bases in the Jewish tradition. Uh, There's not one uh, square inch of the whole of creation or human life that isn't represented in all those words there. It's telling the people of God that God is rule over all things, including what today we would call secular life. I wish we had time to go into that this morning. The Jews had this even more briefly in uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Deuteronomy chapter 10. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome. <laughs> there, they, there it is again, all the different words. But here's, here's this God's who, who he is. He shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widows. He loves the alien and the foreigner. For you yourselves were once aliens, as Paul puts it, separated from the life of God. But in Christ Jesus, you have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Therefore, fear the Lord your God and serve him. Deuteronomy chapter 10. So who has all this power and authority in Isaiah 9, 6? Does it remind anyone of a passage uh, in the New Testament about Jesus? How about at the end of the Great Commission in Matthew's Gospel? Come on, I know we got Bible students out here. Jesus told the disciples right before he was going away, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. All these scriptures in the Old and New Testament that we're looking at wrap up together in Christ. The governing power and authority of the Prince of Peace is Jesus Christ, the Lord. And now a word about shalom uh, as we bring this talk to a close and get ready for communion in a few minutes. Shalom is a word in the Hebrew um, about peace. It's a great Hebrew word, actually, with a lot of different meanings. Um, It's such a powerful word that I think we ought to train our minds in the New Testament. Whenever we see, like, uh, the apostles opening an epistle with, Words like grace and peace to you in the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't just have any old kind of peace there in mind. They have the peace of shalom. These guys were all steeped in the Old Testament traditions. They had memorized chunks of scripture. There was no books for a lot of them to read. The rabbis read the text and the rabbis read the scrolls. Paul would have. But it's just not Paul, it's Peter and the other apostles who weren't rabbis, they they could say that, and it was steeped in their blood. 
shalom. Train our minds, train your minds that when you read that, think of the word shalom. And here's a little bit about what um, what you get from that and what I, why I think we should do this based on the Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 passage. Because the word peace today, <laughs> well, it's either lost its meaning uh, or it's come to mean tolerance or my peace and your peace, like my truth and your truth, um, or even the tentative peace that nations can establish among themselves. In diplomatic circles, you might be interested to know this is often called the absence of war, <laughs> which is quite a revealing statement when you think about it. Uh, and then there was Francis Schaeffer, the great uh, pastor and theologian, uh, who many of you will know whose name and uh, who years ago wrote, um, too many American Christians are falling prey to the peace that is based on personal peace and affluence. So peace has taken a hit this day, these days, the biblical view of peace. But in Isaiah 9, 6, the prince of peace there is the Hebrew word sar shalom. Now sar, don't be confused. Don't be, um, you know, like, oh no, he's using more words. It's just Charles, he's just going, oh. uh, you know, I have a pastor friend who does this a lot and he's always apologizing. I said, stop apologizing. People like this, I think. Um, but sar is just a little word, S-A-R in the Hebrew that means prince or ruler or official. And it's being used there for the prince of peace. The Prince of Shalom, Sar Shalom, and it's capitalized for emphasis. This is huge. It's an emphatic statement. The government is not just any old chief or official or king or ruler in the Old Testament being named. It's the mighty God, the Prince of Peace, Sar Shalom. That's who's going on there. That's what it's talking about. And even more remarkable, that word Sar there, I just discovered this the other day, I love preparing for these messages. I didn't know this at all. And I've known, I've studied this passage a lot over the many years, off and on. So I love it when new things come. You know, we hear this cliche, don't we? And we think it's a cliche. The Word of God is inexhaustible. It's always revealing itself. Well, if you're not studying it, it won't be revealing itself. Like, I don't mean you have to get out a whole library of textbooks, as in my office, but, um, you know, just a few would help, you know, and just study the Word. And the one that came to me this week as I was finalizing this talk was that the word sar there for sar shalom is almost indistinguishably inseparable from the word for government in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. It's as if God is saying, look, guys, you can't have one without the other. You can't have a government of ever-increasing peace, justice, and righteousness without Sar Shalom. It's impossible. As we see, no one needs to be educated in that in our world. Also, what's going on in the word Shalom, and this is huge, the Shalom is what comes to our hearts at conversion, not just any old peace. I think that's why this is uh, when we get saved, at least some of us who had these sort of dramatic and unlooked for conversions, we're just like, wow, 
And for months or years, we're just like, praise God, I'm so different. I had a, my original pastor in Michigan when I was called into the ministry, um, not long after I was saved, there was several people in this ministry like me that were just, we used to be told we were burning out of control for Jesus and we were doing more harm than good. And we ought to shut our mouths for six months and be trained how to talk about Jesus because when people on the streets would ask us, you know, or we'd go out and evangelize, and I'd say, do you want to hear about Jesus? And people say, yeah, and I'd go, uh, hmm, what should I say? You know? So I'd babble something, you know, and hopefully God used it. So we were in a family meeting one Thursday morning, as we used to have in this ministry where I lived full-time, did volunteer work for a year. The family meeting was every, every Thursday morning, I believe it was, or Tuesday. But, you know, 40 or 50 of us in the ministry there who were full-time in the ministry would, would gather, and Pastor Bolga would say to us, you know, okay, what's going on? And somebody like me would be, have, you know, issues. And I, he'd just joke with us, you know, and say, calm down, calm down, you'll be all right. You're burning out of control for Jesus. You know, it's okay to do that, but, you know, get a rain on it, you know. <laughs> anyway, so that's what goes on in our hearts. That's why it's not just any old peace at conversion. But then it spreads out from there. It's not just an individualistic thing. It spreads out from there in our hearts into all of our lives, into also the social, economic, and political aspects of our lives and into all of life. And that is a key uh, truth, aspect, meaning of the word shalom in the Old Testament. It is not about personal peace and affluence. It is not only about individual salvation, although it is that, it is also about hugely peace socially, politically, and economically. And that's why the prophets are always coming along, especially those like Isaiah and Jeremiah and others of the period like Micah. And they're saying, uh, look, God has sent me to warn you guys because you've made a total mess of things with your unjust policies You've, you're oppressing the weakest members of society. Everybody's signed off on this. Uh, the elite are doing well. The rich are doing well. The rulers are doing well. The policymakers are doing well. But the whole rest of society is going to hell in a handbasket. I'm sorry to be so bold, but that's what's going on in the prophets. Some of the language in the English is too polite to put it that way. And Jeremiah and Isaiah are coming along and say, look, shape up, people. As Jeremiah puts it in Jeremiah 6, the people are, in fact, I'm going to read this. The people are saying, peace, peace, where there is no peace. The false prophets, the, even the priests, are saying, peace, peace, where there is no peace. That's shalom, shalom, where there is no shalom. Where? In the society. You people are already following Yahweh, but you're doing a lousy job of it in society. You're following other gods. You're bound up in idolatries, you're, you're not right. Um, where is it? Okay. Uh, Jeremiah 6, verse 13. From the least to the, to the greatest, all are greedy for gain. Prophets and priests alike all practice deceit. They dress the wound of my people lightly or slightly as though it were not serious. Shalom, shalom, they say, where there is no shalom. Are they ashamed of their loathsome conduct? No. 
They have no shame at all. They do not even blush. So they will fall among the fallen. They will be brought down when I punish them. Now there's many other verses uh, that talk about this false peace that's being prophesied to the people. You know, it's not just one political party in Israel that was making the mess of things. It was the whole nation, all, all the rulers, except for a few that came along and did some reforms. But in, the, in God's eyes, they'd made a big mess of their social, economic, and political lives by implementing terribly unjust policies, repressive policies in the land, especially against its weakest members. So God sent the biblical prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah to rebuke it and to call the rulers and the people to repentance. I like how one uh, theologian summed it up. Prophets such as Isaiah and Jeremiah, and I'm quoting now, warned against the assumption of the false prophets who identified the purpose of salvation with political stability and peace in Israel, thus identifying divine peace with political peace, end of quote. And he goes on to say that this is why such prophets distanced themselves from what he calls, quote, the false shalom prophets, the false shalom preaching, which was everywhere during the times of Isaiah and Jeremiah. And dare I say, not unlike is going on in our time today. As we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table or communion or um, the Lord's Supper or Eucharist, you know, different de- denominations have different names for it. Uh, I've been reflecting a lot about, um, for the past few years off and on and praying uh, quite a lot about uh, what, the, what the meaning of partaking of the Lord's Supper is really all about. I don't know, I didn't know why at first the Lord was on my case about this probably because I used to think, and I'm going to confess this because I'm going to ask you to reflect on your own sins in a minute. I used to sit in congregations, and uh, I mean, I've been blessed to be in uh, participant and speak in uh, all forms of Christian devotion and worship for almost 40 or 40 plus years on both sides of the pond. And I would sit there in some communion services and, and it would just seem so traditional and so everyday, so it never really got through to me too often. And when, it, when a few years ago, the Lord began to, it was almost like, I'm going to say it, it was almost like I'd say to myself, I'd say to myself, oh, here we go again. Okay, I'll do this, you know. And I would formulate some little prayer for myself. Well, about three years ago, when the Lord began to impress upon me uh, stop it, you know. <laughs> you know, you need to know what the what communion is all about. And I didn't really know what he was on, what the Lord was on about, so I began praying and praying. And I'm just going to share briefly a little bit about what began to come through to me. And I repented and have changed my... <laughs> now, now I get it. Um, and an additional boost to me in this regard recently, and thank you, Ann, for uh, doing that with the Rosh Hashanah um, uh, reminder, was to be reminded that it was uh, the time of Rosh Hashanah, uh, starting with trumpets, leading through a a cycle, uh, the short cycle of 10 days, 
which ends with Yom Kippur this year for the Jews on October 4th and 5th. And uh, it's a time of deep repentance for them as they reflect on their sins of the past year and calling the, the people then to head up into the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur uh, where they, um, you know, confess and make atonement or have atonement for their sins. And then they, then they, their new year goes on from there. Um, when Wes asked me to lead the communion today, uh, he'd already asked me to do this message. I'm not sure he knew exactly what I was going to do, but <laughs> I'll find out later. But um, uh, it was some weeks ago, and I didn't know that it was going to be today because the date was different than today for the message. And then so calls, Charles, can you do it on the 25th and said, calendar, okay, yeah, uh, okay, good, and by the way, do communion. So I, I wasn't aware that it was going to be Rosh Hashanah today. So this week when I learned it was, and I thought, oh, no, this is interesting, because <laughs> I already had an idea of what I wanted to do in the message. And so being reminded that this is a season in Judaism for a time of deep reflection and repentance over a 10-day period uh, for them. And we want to come to the Lord's table, which is normally there, but not there today. Um, uh, it just got me to thinking. Um, what Paul said in uh, his first letter to the Corinthians, and I'm going to just cite that so I don't botch it. In chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, Paul uh, writes this. Well, it's chapter 5 to us anyways. There's no chapters back then. Um, in this section of, long section of Corinthians that starts in chapter 1 and goes probably through chapter 11, this is kind of in the middle. And Paul is, uh, it's, it's really um, mind-boggling. He's rebuking the church for the, the blatant sins that they've been allowing and practicing and sustaining in the church, various different kinds. I'm not going to go into those. But in the middle of that, rebuking them and telling them to get their act together, he writes, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven or yeast works through the whole batch of dough, or as the King James puts it, the whole lump? Get rid of the old leaven that you may be a new King James lump. <laughs> like Paul, Paul's calling them a lump. Well, okay. <laughs> the NIV is more polite, uh, that you may be a new batch without yeast. As you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the bread, but with bread without yeast or leaven, the bread of sincerity and truth. Now, I hope that none of us are here today uh, with blatant sins in our lives. <laughs> Um, but what I want to ask us to do today as we prepare our hearts and minds for communion um, is to seriously, seriously reflect for a few minutes, and I'm going to ask us in a couple of minutes to just quiet and still our lives 
before the Lord, put away our cell phones or any distracting things unless you have an emergency, and just sit quietly and think about the meaning of our participation in communion, uh, what we've signed up for when we partake of it, if you will. Search our hearts, see where we need to repent, um, get the old leaven out. Um, Hopefully we can develop a habit of this as Christians to do it as the Jews did leading up to this day. Um, But now's enough time this morning um, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. I think the apostles' reason for calling the church to remember the feast and to reflect on it and to get rid of their sins is because he's seeking to reacquaint the church about what took place when? The night of our Lord's betrayal. So what about that night? Well, it is, of course, the night of what we call the Last Supper and much else besides. But it is also the night of this. Put away thy sword, for those who live by the sword will die by the sword. Why no more sword talk? What is it that some of Jesus' disciples don't understand even at this late date? Well, like me, (laughs) they hadn't gotten it through their thick heads that the way of the gospel, which by the way means good news, is absolutely not the way of violence. It is the way of peace, of shalom, led by Jesus, the Prince of Peace, our Sar Shalom. Yet when a very large, angry, and unruly mob show up uh, with swords and clubs to arrest Jesus, it was, as Shell puts it, during the heat and fury of that arrest that Peter lops off the ear of the servant of the high priest. I'll have none of that, I can hear Jesus saying to Peter, for all who use the sword will die by it. And then to show them what spirit he, Jesus, is of, Jesus, Jesus immediately heals the poor fellow's ear and, and submits to the arrest. Of course, that wasn't the only time that Jesus rebuked uh, sternly some members of the Twelve for being motivated by a violent spirit. Earlier in his ministry, uh, the brothers James and John, who later are called the Sons of Thunder, cited an incident from the ministry of the prophet Elijah. You can find that in 2 Kings uh, chapter 1 to try to justify calling fire down from heaven upon an entire village. Why? Because they'd rejected Jesus. But Jesus rebuked them and said, you don't know what spirit you are of. Stop it. And still, some of them by the time of the Last Supper don't get it. But by healing the fellow's ear that night of his arrest, Jesus is literally acting out the meaning of the Last Supper. And the meaning is this, in short. It is about participating in living a life of self-sacrificing love toward others. Full stop, period, no negotiations. This is the key to what we are participating in when we participate in the table of the Lord. We remember what we've signed up for as followers of Jesus, who not only leads us in the way of self-sacrificing love, but he himself is that way and the truth and the life. It is the way of shalom. It begins at the heart of conversion and then spreads out from there 
in the disciples' life, into all of the disciples' life, and then out from there into society, social, economic, and political, into all of those activities and so much more. And the question before us this morning is, how are we doing? And are there any sins in the way preventing that? It's a lifelong process of following Jesus in his school of discipleship. So as we think about this, I believe the Lord would be pleased if we take a few minutes in silence now, all of us, to quiet our hearts and minds. Uh, put away your cell phones unless you've got an emergency uh, and other distracting things. Um, and reflect on where there's leaven in our lives this morning that needs purging before we participate together in the Lord's table. Uh, if it's the kind of sin that you need to go to someone uh, and ask for forgiveness, promise the Lord and yourself you'll do that sometime soon, and then don't forget to go do it. And after this time of reflection, we'll take and participate in the Lord's Supper. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Lord, we remember your sacrifice for us. Forgive us for not living that kind of life toward others and help us to do better at it. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it and remember of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father God, we're thankful that you are our Father and that you are the mighty God, the God who saves, saves us to walk and live in your peace, in your shalom, not just for our own individualistic uh, interests, Lord. In fact, not even especially for that, but especially for others. Lord, may you help us in the days and weeks and years ahead to walk in this school of discipleship with your son Jesus by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.